right, all right, all right. Welcome to Digging a Hole, the legal theory podcast. On this podcast, my co-host, Sam Moy, and I talk about legal theory and whatever else is on our mind. So how you doing, Sam? I'm doing great. Is this the time of the semester where, where you get to inflict a book about economics on me? Indeed it is. This is exactly the moment in the semester where I get to inflict about a book, a book about economics on you. But this wasn't really inflicting one. This was a really fun conversation. No, and I, um, enjoyed, I enjoy them all. Yeah, it's, I mean, as you should. Um, but uh, 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 Leah Bustan and Rana Bermitsky have this wonderful new book called Streets of Gold that talks about the economics of immigration, how immigrants have not changed as much over the last hundred years in terms of their levels of integration and economic success as you might think, or maybe you thought that and they uh, they reject it. And the conversation goes in all sorts of fun directions. We um, discuss uh, why immigrants uh, uh, succeed economically or the children of immigrants succeed economically. Uh, we discuss why history should, pro- rather than economics, should be thought of as the dismal science or maybe the dismal humanity. Um, although I suppose um, seeing the number of majors each year uh, make, make, it make, you, make, make you pretty dismal over time, Sam. So it's a... Um, uh, but, but I'm always so cheery, so you are you know, so cheery. I've already you, refuted your. Your it's a good you know, point. You are a, a beacon of light, right, absolutely. Uh, that bounces off these streets of gold uh, into into our podcast. So thank you for that, Sam, and uh, and let's get to it. All right! All right! All right! We're so excited to have Rana Bermitsky and Leah Bustan with us today. Um, Runs the uh, Stanford Federal Credit Union Professor of Economics and the Senior Associate Dean of the Social Sciences at Stanford University. Leah is a Professor of Economics at Princeton University, where she also serves as the Director of the Industrial Relations Section. Um, They are among the, if not the, foremost economists studying immigration. They're here to talk about their new book, Streets of Gold, America's Untold Story of Immigrant Success, which I will tell you personally, I found is one of my favorite books of the year. And also, uh, this is something I think we're going to talk about, I found kind of quite inspiring about uh, about America, among other things. Um, So uh, welcome to Digging a Hole. Thank you very much. Yeah, thank you for having us. No, congratulations on the book. It's it's a fantastic read. So uh, it's it's presented as a kind of myth busting exercise, uh, but of course there are several myths that need to be taken down. One is about just as I understand it, the speediness of success for immigrants. You know, rags to riches. That's a myth. Another related myth is that old immigrants uh, had a different experience. Uh, than new ones who are somehow allegedly falling short. That's a myth. And then a third myth, at least in my list, is that newcomers make those already present in America worse off. That's a myth. Um, so we're going to talk about them roughly in that order. But before we get to them, I just wanted to give you a chance to talk about um, the basis of all your arguments, which is really sophisticated research uh, census data, but you know, uh, is, as you describe in one of your chapters, a big download from Ancestry. dot com, and so I just wanted to invite you to talk about you know how how you made your argument on what empirical basis, and if you can add color, you know what wh- what happened when you got a cease and desist letter from the website. Right. So, uh, so the 
Ancestry.com is, as you said, was the basis of the, the origin of our, of our book. And uh, after 72 years, all the information, including the identifying information, become publicly available for, for everyone. And so uh, genealogical websites like Ancestry.com uh, allow people to go and search for their grandparents and their great-grandparents on the on the platform. And so Leah and I were thinking, well, you know, Leah was able to find her great-grandparents there and her grandfather there, and I was able to find my great-uncles uh, there. And so we are like, well, if we can find our families, wh- why can't we go ahead and, and search for 100 families or maybe 1,000 or maybe 100,000 families? And so that's, that's what we did. And we uh, went online and bought ourselves an Ancestry.com account. You know, now will be something like $24.99. And we started to search for as many immigrant families as we could. And we wrote automated programs to to scale up this effort. And then uh, we were very excited to to be able to, uh, you know, really look for many families and where they live, what they do for a living, who, you know, uh, how they name their children, how much they earn and all that stuff until... One day I, I was in the, I came to the office and I, I got this phone call from the ancestry lawyer and he was like, well, you seem to have a very large family. What the hell are you doing there over there at Stanford? And, uh, and I was like, well, you know, we are just uh, social scientists trying to uh, rebuild the immigration story from the ground up by searching up many immigrant families. And, you know, like by the end of the conversation, he was like, well, can you already tell me what's the difference between the Irish immigration experience and the Italian immigration experience? And and by that point, I knew that we are in, in a relatively good shape, but for a while there, it was stressful. And just to say that uh, since then, of course, Ancestry has been an incredible partner to us and to many other researchers and really allowing uh, for the first time, this scaling up of large data sets and looking up uh, people and following them over time. I love the idea that at first they thought you were like that doctor in that Kundera novel. You just had a, you had a hundred thousand children or something. I think that that that's, that was their <laughs> first know, instinct. Is extremely funny. You know, I think it was it was either that or the alternative was worse, which is we are downloading the data and selling it to 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 others, and then uh, and that's where the <laughs> that, that was the the stressful part of the experience. <laughs> so. You know, the, the myths are definitely worth busting, um, but I, I was kind of least sure about how widely shared the first one in particular is about like how speedy um, immigrant success is um, like that's not a myth that people in my family, Jewish family uh, held. And, you know, we are perfectly aware of our, you know, poverty for a, a generation or so there. Um, and I also, so I wanted to just get a sense of, from you of, of either what the basis of all, all the myths is like how widely shared they actually are, or just the first one. And also ask like a, 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 another question about the kind of rags to riches story, because it's sort of about immigrants sometimes. Um, but it's also kind of about long-term Americans in the form of the Horatio Alger myth. And so I would have said that the rags to riches myth is really about um, something Americans tell themselves to give the impression that there's lots of class mobility in this country, 
um, kind of falsely. Um, and it's not so much about like instantaneous success for immigrants in particular. Well, I think that there is a very widely shared nostalgic view about the Ellis Island generation. Um, and that is shared between the political left and the political right in the country. Um, so um, we were first inspired to actually write all of this into a book form um, on the day that uh, President Trump said, I wish we had more immigrants from Norway coming to the U.S. rather than the immigrants we have these days. And, you know, it had a couple of more colorful ways of saying that. Um, and so the idea there is that the immigrants who came from Europe um, were maybe a better match to the country. They were more successful. They built the country. Um, and so even though they immigrated from somewhere, they really are one of us. And you can hear this as well with pundits like Rush Limbaugh, who say, well, you know, the Italian Americans, they really wanted to become American. They very quickly embraced American identity. Um, they tried to learn English and not speak Italian in the home. But now these days, immigrants from um, all of these Spanish-speaking countries, they live in big enclaves and they don't really embrace American culture. So you hear this on the right, but you also hear this on the left. I mean, maybe not all the way to the edge of the left, but you hear this from politicians like President Obama, um, who has really laudatory things to say about various different European immigrant groups. And what's different about Obama versus Trump is how they think this analogy applies to immigrants today. So Obama might say the Ellis Island generation was great and current immigrants are great too. And they'll also sort of have a similar trajectory. Um, and we see differences, you know, in the way that politicians on the right might laud the Ellis Island generation and then have a lot of criticism about current immigration. Um, so I think it's a pretty widespread um, sort of rosy hued picture about uh, immigration in the past. Um, not to say that necessarily people imagine that you, you know, get off the boat and within five years you have amassed a fortune, but that you could arrive with very little in your pocket and you could make your way um, and you could move up maybe without education, without connections. Um, so we actually went back into uh, some of the historical record and found that a lot of these myths kind of trace back to progressive journalists at the time, like early 20th century. Um, there was a hot debate about closing the border and closing the border was very popular. Um, and so there were journalists who were holding up stories of individuals saying, look, these immigrants start really poor. Sure, that's true. They come unwashed, you know, uneducated, but look at how successful they are just hustling. You know, this guy um, just started out as a, a you know, a shoeshine man, and now he owns his own, you know, little storefront. This guy started out as a peddler, and now he's amassed, you know, multiple thousands of dollars. Um, and so that, those are the kinds of stories that make it into um, textbooks as well. And that's what a lot of us hear um, when we go to high school. What's the evidence it's false? Well, great question. <laughs> so the, this nostalgic, so I guess it's false in two ways. They didn't necessarily start in rags and they didn't necessarily move to riches. <laughs> So the, we find that the rags to riches is a myth. So many of the Ellis Island immigrants that we follow in the census records were slow to climb up the economic ladder. 
working in manual jobs and never making it into white collar jobs. Um, this is, by the way, the title of our book, Streets of Gold, was because this unknown, probably Italian immigrant in the 1900s said something like, uh, I came to America because I heard that streets there were paved with gold. But when I got here, I found out three things. The first thing is the streets were not paved with gold. Second, they were not paved at all. And third, I was the one expected to pave them. So this immigrant knew better, kind of like Sam, uh, he knew better that immigrants have to pave their own way to success rather than immediately come from, from rags to riches. But like today- I'm not we sure find- paving your streets with gold is a good idea. The road would be very soft. <laughs> it would fall under trucks. It seems, seems unwise. It does structurally seem, it does, unsound. That does seem, that's, that's actually a very good point from an engineering perspective. It's not a very good idea. And so we find that like today, the Ellis Island era, you know, like the immigrants in the Ellis Island era who started out in lower paying jobs continue to have poor jobs. So many immigrants do not move from- uh, do not make it to riches. But at the same time, not every immigrant started out in rags. So we find that many immigrants, particularly immigrants from the richer sending countries like England and Germany, arrived with skills that already allowed them to quickly find high-paying jobs even upon first arrival. And so the uh, that's kind of like, uh, and you know, when you looked at where are these uh, myths coming from, you know, both from family stories and stuff, but also because the data that we had before we were able to follow immigrants over time, you know, you could still look at a, a snapshot of the economy, at a census of population at one point in time. And when you did that, you would notice that immigrants who arrived here five years ago are struggling, whereas immigrants who arrived here 30 years ago are doing very well. And so if you imagine that a, a hypothetical immigrant is going through that path, after five years not doing very well, after 30 years doing great, you're like, that's rags to riches. Whereas in reality, it was that immigrants who came here five years ago were very different than the ones who came here 30 years ago. So you will be comparing maybe a Mexican unskilled immigrants to a German scientist who came long ago. And, and so the data also that we had painted a, a more rosy picture uh, than when you were able to follow the same person over time. So a lot of the book um, seeks to refute claims by uh, modern immigration restrictionists that older immigrants were uh, better than today in some ways. But in fact, your finding is that of kind of a remarkable consistency, that immigrants don't rise up the ladder much themselves, but their kids learn English and integrate into economic life quickly. They learn English at roughly the same rate, move into integrated inter- in neighborhoods at roughly the same rates, give their kids Americanized names at roughly the same rate. Um, uh, um, and they out today. They outpace poor Americans or similarly income with similar income Americans, and they intermarry at pretty similar rates than they did uh, of the earlier generations. Maybe slightly higher today, but it's probably similar. And if you, if, as a myth busting exercise, that like this prior group was good and this one is bad, that's I, I you know, I'm a hundred percent convinced. But I found the consistency with not having that prior because it's extremely strange. Like, why is it the case that? there is this broad consistency. I mean, the world is really different than it was in 1900s. Uh, we have many more resources devoted to education. Technology is different. Um, I, if my prior is not today's immigrants are lousy, whereas the old immigrants are good, um, why is it the case that we see this consistency? Because I could imagine another prior that's like, we have more resources, integration should happen much more quickly today. 
So like why like what explains the consistency once you have dispelled the myth of that like there were good there were good good immigrants and now there are bad ones. Well, David, we were also really surprised by our findings because as you point out there are incredibly important differences between the economy today and the economy 100 years ago or immigrants today and immigrants 100 years ago. So 100 years ago, 90% of immigrants came from Europe. And today immigrants come from all over the world. 100 years ago, essentially no European immigrant was illegal or undocumented until you get into the 1920s uh, because there were very few restrictions on entry if you were coming from Europe. And today, there's much more demand for entering the U.S. than there are the limited visa slots that we offer. And so many immigrants are undocumented today. And then when you think about who was coming from Europe, the Statue of Liberty was actually right that it was the poor, tired, huddled masses. It was people from the lower end of the income distribution in Europe. And today, even though we're pulling immigrants from poorer countries, we tend to be getting the more educated or wealthier members of those societies. So, you know, when we started the project, we had no reason to believe that there would be such consistency. And we were also really surprised, especially if you layer on top um, these two graphs that we have in the book for the children of immigrants relative to the children of the U.S. born. And the, the graphs almost look identical, even though we're talking about very different countries of origin. Um, so I think in social sciences, if you see a similar pattern, you kind of go with this um, simplifying assumption that it must be a similar mechanism at play. And I don't think that's necessarily the case here. Um, historically, um, one of the main factors that children of immigrants um, and their families used to get ahead was their geographic location. So Immigrant families did not settle in the U.S. South, for example, in very large numbers. And that was a location that um, had poor, limited upward mobility for everyone, for Black Americans, but also for white Americans living there. Um, and so by avoiding the South, that was one way that immigrant families got ahead. Then even outside the South, by moving to cities and within cities, by moving to the most dynamic cities. So geography played an incredibly important role in the past. It's still relevant today. It still explains part of what we are finding, but education and the importance that immigrant parents place on education may be playing a more important role today. Um, so, um, you know, I think that the consistency is like the starting point. It's just uh, the set of data and facts and now sort of getting into the mechanisms of how immigrant families get ahead. Those don't necessarily have to be the same um, in these two time periods. Yeah, so I just want to quickly uh, press on that a little bit because you find consistency not just across time but across groups. So it's not just that you're you're seeing. Uh, I mean, there's obviously variation among sending country economic outcomes. But one of the amazing findings is that uh, immigrants of I think it's from all but two sender countries um, do better than similarly situated um, uh, of similar income level on uh, uh, native born people. Um, and so it strikes me that there is something that you, that you're, you have to explain a lot of consistency, even you, I mean, it could be an individual mechanism for each one of them, but it's, uh, it's it, there. I mean, I, I don't know whether you're underselling or overselling, but it's, it's, you're explaining a huge amount of consistency that you see like the very similar patterns in the, I, I thought one of the coolest things is like the, the naming stuff where people, yeah. You know, um, and you see just extreme and across extremely different types of people. And so it does seem a little bit like you're finding like a real, like 
truth or fact about about um, about uh, immigrant life in the kind of post industrial era or industrial era. Immigrants all share one attribute in common, which is that they have engaged in movement. You know, so they're willing to leave home, break family ties, go to a country where they might not speak the language in pursuit often of economic opportunities, sometimes of um, political freedom and safety. Um, and that's something that's common across across time and across uh, sending location. Um, and we actually see something pretty similar for um, U.S.-born families that engage in internal movement. So if you look at the children of a U.S.-born parent who's left his state of birth, we see that the children aren't doing quite as well as the children of immigrants, but they're making up a lot of the gap. So being willing to move in pursuit of opportunity is something that's common across immigrants and is incredibly powerful. And, and I also want to add, so many, some things are consistent, many things are consistent. So the children of, uh, immig- the children of immigrants who grow up in low-income families are more likely to rise and more likely to make it into the middle classes than the children of the U.S. born. That is true from nearly every sending country. And on average, it's true for immigrants in the past and today. And it is true that uh, immigrants, uh, you know, give uh, American-sounding names to their children in the same rate as, as in the past. But not everything we find is, is showful. It's not, I don't want to over-exaggerate this remarkable consistency in the sense that we do find a lot of variation country by country and a lot of heterogeneity. So, for example, we find that immigrants, uh, children of immigrants from India and China today are remar- much more upwardly mobile than the children of, of, other, of, of other immigrant groups. Uh, in the past, we find variation as well. We find that immigrant groups uh, uh, who are relatively feeling threatened in both periods are the ones who, who try to uh, integrate more into society. So some things are, uh, I would say, the comparison between the immigrants in general to the U.S. born are consistent, but we always find a lot of variation country by country and, and by immigrant groups uh, uh, to, to, to a lot and to a remarkable degree as well. So it's not like a, a one story fit all kind of kind of thing. It really depends on if you're a lumper or a splitter. I tend to be a lumper. And so I tend to sort of see it like David does that, wow, there's this really, you know, a, amazing and consistent um, advantage that the children of immigrants experience relative to the children of the U.S. born in social mobility. Um, But then I show the same picture to other folks and they really see the splitting. They see the fact that children of immigrants from particular regions and locations are doing better than children of immigrants from other areas. And one thing, for example, that is different in the past and today is that today it is true that because immigrants tend to come from poorer sending countries, the baseline level of their earnings at first is lower. So they are kind of relative to the U.S. born. They are they are kind of like in, on a lower baseline, and the, and then their children. Of course, it's in the children's generation where you see the the remarkable similarities of how they catch up with U.S. born both in the past and today. So, in effect, we've been talking about that. What what at least on my list was the second myth, and I definitely want to turn to the third, which is all important, you know, in the age of Trump and so forth. But. I, I just want to go in a different direction first. And uh, it's really to ask about kind of your discipline and how that kind of leads to the way you think about the whole topic. So I'm uh, a historian by training. And, you know, 
I can't defend it, but you know, almost every historian I know is low-key suspicious of the economics profession. Uh, now, actually, you have a whole chapter that mines the work of my colleagues. Uh, you cite Leah's colleague, Beth Lou Williams, my old colleague, May Nye, many others who have done incredible work on, on some of the same topics. But what's so striking to me is the divergence and in, in, let's say, the whole picture. So you, you seem to be fans of an upbeat about America and the immense possibilities it offers and so forth, whereas my colleagues are grim and prosecutorial and they focus on things like exclusion, racism, anti-Semitism, anti-Catholicism, Cold War politics that privileged white Christians rather than other people for a long time, even after the 1960s uh, innovations. And then in our time, things like racist bans on people from shithole countries, which is, is then considered, you know, as American as apple pie. Um, so, you, you, you know, my colleagues see lots of continuity in U.S. history like you do, but it's bad things. And, you know, I'm blown away by, and I, you know, would be happy to entertain a, a, a kind of happy picture of my country to, you know, cheer me up. But it, it's just, it just is jarring to move from a history discussion of these same topics, many of which you acknowledge, albeit briefly, um, to your take. And so I just wondered, do you have any reflections on that? What was at stake in reading the historians? Um, is there a prospect of dialogue and reconciliation or are we going to have something else kind of permanently? Well, one reason why people may have a hypothesis that the children of immigrants do not rise or that immigrants do not take steps to integrate or assimilate is that somehow immigrants are from a worse stock of people. You know, that's what the anti-immigrant and xenophobes um, of the early 20th century would say. That's what some folks on the right would say today. But another hypothesis about why the children of immigrants may not rise is the ones that you're pointing out, Sam, um, that come from the history profession about um, the many barriers uh, that immigrants face, um, the discrimination, um, the um, enclaves that they may have been forced to live in, uh, the ways that they had a hard time finding work um, given their ethnic names or their accent um, and aspects of their identity. And so if that is the prior that you're coming into the, uh, the research with, then all the more so it is really surprising and, and truly amazing um, how the children of immigrants are able to do so well in terms of earnings. Um, that's only one measure of what we care about in life, but that's what we um, are looking at in the beginning of the book is sort of economic success. And then maybe also all the more amazing that um, we see a range of different forms of culture, cultural integration as well. Um, so I, I think that um, nothing in our book is to deny the barriers that immigrants faced and continue to face. Um, but against those odds, we see um, the children of immigrants doing remarkably well. Um, the one thing we would point out is that there's a set of barriers that exist today that we're really not able um, to research yet. And that is um, the barriers of having undocumented parents and possibly being undocumented yourself as a child. Um, so 
in order to follow the children of immigrants, we need to give them time to finish their education, get a career, and then, you know, potentially move up a bit uh, along their career path. So um, we're looking at children who were born in the early 80s, and that means that they would be in their 40s today and um, uh, at a point where we can accurately measure their earnings. You mind if I add a few, a couple of things just to, so, so that also, you know, Leah Le- Le- and I are economic historians. So, you know, as economic historians, we, 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 you know, we, our methods are often uh, economics, but we are also, uh, uh, we feel that economic history is in this busy intersection between the social sciences and economics and history and other disciplines in uh, sociology and, uh, and, and, and others. And we are bringing uh, all these uh, insights that we have from our colleagues in history and in sociology into the book and into our thinking. We are not just uh, uh, quoting them in a half, uh, you know, just because they worked on something, but we really read them and we want to take their insights uh, uh, into, into account. And that's why we love economic history so much, because it allows us to, uh, to do that. Uh, I, I do think that there, is some, there are some differences that, you know, I remember I, I co-authored a paper with a historian and, you know, we have a regression line. It's related to the splitters versus lumpers, I guess. But, you know, the regression lines show some positive relationship. And my historian co-author is like, well, but half of your observations are above the line and the other half are below the line. Why? And isn't the most interesting observation the one that is furthest away from the line? Why are we focusing on the line? And so I think that uh, historians tend to, in, uh, you know, like focus also on those who tend to lose from all of it. You know, it's like, well, great. It's all happy uh, go lucky story. But what about this group that is all the time losing and throughout American history? And so that tends to paint a very, very real but, uh, but uh, a picture, but one that is not uh, focusing on, on the average experience, but one that is focusing on the ones who tend to, to lose from all of these developments. And so the I think that, uh, and, and we acknowledge this in the book, and we tell stories of a lot of the people who struggle, and we acknowledge that, uh, you know, there are bigger issues like race that, we, that, you know, should be addressed elsewhere in more detail and are addressed elsewhere in more detail. But we also want to point out that not everything is grim. <laughs> not everything is, uh, is just uh, these experiences. And, and in fact, one of the things that uh, was heartening for us is how we were expected the book to you know, to go well with the left and with Democrats and with people who, uh, you know, who like uh, to hear that immigration is good. But what was surprising for us for in a good way was that uh, some in the right, you know, re- uh, Republicans and, and people on the right say, well, you know, we always hear from the left that everything is bad about the U.S. and this is going wrong and that is going wrong and we are racist place and we are not welcoming place. And, and, and here is one sliver of that, that is actually uh, going well. America can be great for many immigrants, not maybe for everyone, but uh, not for all immigrants even, but 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 for many people, people this is a good uh, this is a good place, and there is some special sauce about America that is making that uh, work. Yes. Yeah. So, so I just want to get back to this uh, final point about um, the children who were born in the '80s and 
things in our book look pretty rosy, but we do caution that thing that with the patterns that we see um, for children who were raised in the 80s may not be replicated for the kids of the 90s or the 2000s, um, given that the children of the 80s had this special advantage that even if their parents arrived undocumented, even if they arrived undocumented, there was the opportunity to go through the 1986 amnesty program that was um, overseen by President Reagan. And so there were around 3 million undocumented individuals in the country at the time, and 2.2 million um, went through uh, a pathway to citizenship. So what would our patterns look like today if a for certain of the countries of origin that we talk about in the book, there is going to be a high rate of undocumented parents and even in some cases, a high rate of undocumented children. Um, in that case, some of the barriers um, that are very present today may impede the mobility that we see in the book. I think we just made progress. Economists are always uh, are always criticized for it being the dismal science. But I think Sam's question, your answer actually suggests that historians are the dismal humanity and economists are the bringers of light and joy. I feel like we can take less of that. I just want to quickly, um, quickly uh, just uh, one of the things that uh, Rand's answer just suggested was that some difference between the United States and other countries. And you kind of hinted, you talk about this briefly in the place of the book, but like, is the U.S.'s experience common or different from other countries in uh, in integrating immigrants? It's one thing Leah and I are uh, regret for not having, including a more another chapter and doing more with the differences between the U.S. and other countries. Uh, in part, one of the ex post justification of why maybe we didn't do it is because uh, the United States has always been a nation of, of uh, the received immigrants for, for 100 years. We wanted to bring the long run. In Europe, for example, this is a relatively new experience. You know, Europe used to be a sending region of immigrants, and only in the last few decades it's becoming a receiving region of immigrants. Uh, when we read, when we talk to colleagues, and when we read the, and so the literature has not also has not is not developed enough to do that. And uh, you know there is a lot of work in the data that uh, we, we should have we would have waited another three years if we had to do it ourselves to to tell you what's happening in Europe. But with the research that we see, uh, it does seem like there is something special about the U.S. So I don't think that what we are telling is a an immigration story that is true. Always and everywhere, there is something of a special source in the United States. It does look like in Europe, uh, the immigrants and the children of immigrants aren't assimilated and integrated uh, as quickly as they are in the United States. Uh, perhaps in Canada and Australia, they, they, they are doing, uh, they are doing uh, uh, more similarly to the United States. Perhaps that tells you something about... Uh, a country that ha or a region that has a long history of of receiving immigrants. Uh, more research is is needed on this certainly, but it doesn't. But it does look like there is something in the United uh, of the experience in the, of immigrants in the United States that is special. So it it's time to turn to you know what I was calling the third myth, and, and just at the threshold, I I wanted to offer you a chance to lay out. Uh, your case that newcomers don't hurt the U.S. born or prior residents. Um, and I, I just wonder if in doing so, you could g give me a sense uh, of what the criteria are for answering the question, because I get that for certain people, they're economic, uh, both economists and certain people who uh, fear that, uh, according to some set of economic criteria, uh, 
you know, their well-being might be, you know, decreased in some way or um, by by newcomers. And and of course, you 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 refute that myth very handily. But I I would have thought that um, a lot of people are are bringing uh, other criteria, not ones I you know would bring or defend, but they have to do with things like whether America should be a wasp country or a white country or an English country, English speaking. Um, and it seems like that question is, is very hard to answer, uh, not just kind of ethically, but because it seems clear that immigrants have changed the face of the country. I think it's for sure that, you know, our Jewish ancestors uh, have led to massive changes in the culture and way of life of of the United States, and I'm for those changes. But then I'm a beneficiary of them. So um, I, I just I, it it just seems that to answer the question about harm, we need a defensible set of criteria, and economic criteria are just it, some of them. Right. I mean, when we talk about this topic in the book, we start by talking about wages and job loss for U.S.-born workers, but we also talk about whether immigrants bring crime with them um, and also uh, what are some of the cultural um, either gifts or concerns that that immigrants bring with them as well. So I totally agree with you that, um, you know, it's not just a matter of settling this question of uh, are immigrants net job creators or do they steal jobs? But um, even if you're uh, very comfortable with the economic um, situation, you, you may have uh, legitimate reasons to be concerned about how immigrants will change the country in other ways. Um, so I don't know if we should start by talking about economics or some of the other um, topics first. Um, yeah, 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 definitely. I mean, I, I think it's, you know, that your, your answers are so convincing on the economic front that maybe you should just give them. But like, if you have any thoughts about like how we reckon with the fact that a lot of people are not bringing those criteria in, 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 in supporting immigration restriction. So maybe before, you know? maybe before Leah, you know, gets to the economics, I'll just say the, uh, one thing on this general criteria. It's not one of our purposes in the book to, to, to advocate for a particular, uh, uh, you know, uh, make, uh, we are not advocates, we are researchers. So we are happy for, uh, to document set of facts and for different people with different opinions about this, what this criteria should be to make different conclusions about whether they think that this is good or bad. So, for example, we would sh- we show that there is cultural assimilation of immigrants, but that this cultural assimilation is incomplete and immigrants continue to retain their own cultural identity. Now, if your prior is that uh, that is in itself a reason to not accept immigrants because they are culturally different, you can make that conclusion from our data. Or if your prior was you think they are not even attempt to assimilate slightly, then we show you that they do. So you can uh, so we we are in we are more in the business of documenting facts and in uh, giving you a set of uh, of uh, facts on culture, economics, and other things, and and, and allow different people, uh, reasonable people, to make different conclusions. Interestingly, when we looked into the congressional record at speeches about immigration. Um, these days, there's a lot of political polarization on whether speeches are pro or anti immigration. Democrats are more pro, Republicans are a lot more anti. 
Um, but then if we look at the topics that are under consideration, um, you can classify speeches as more cultural um, or more economic. Um, and also there are speeches where there are concerns about legality and crime. And it's on the economic issues, which include both labor market issues, but also fiscal tax issues, like are immigrants a burden um, in the tax system? Do they take more of their fair share of resources through the social safety net? Actually, Republicans and Democrats are pretty similar um, in the ways that they speak about those issues. And where they're different is with Republicans focusing on crime and legal issues, and with Democrats focusing on communities and family and contributions. So some of the more, cult, you know, the culture that immigrants bring with them, the diversity and holding that up as, a, as something that's good. Um, so, um, you know, it seems like there's actually less um, political debate about the economics. I mean, certainly there's always someone like Stephen Miller who's going to make uh, an argument that's quite simplistic, like, well, immigrants our workers, when one worker comes in and finds a job, it must be that some other worker has lost their job, you know, some kind of very zero-sum way of seeing the world. Um, but I don't think that that ultimately is that convincing um, to most voters. Many voters are willing to accept the more complicated view of the economy that, you know, immigrants also open businesses. You know, it's not just the really high-skilled immigrants contributing to science and technology, but also like your local restaurant, your local dry cleaner. Um, you know, immigrants also demand services like, you know, when they show up and they're consumers in the local economy, that also buoys the opportunity for jobs for other people. Many people will accept that more complicated view of the economy, um, but then they'll sort of um, retrench to concerns about culture. And that's what we see in the kind of uh, really analyzing the political debate. Yeah, so this is actually where I, 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 I one of the things I found most interesting because I may, like Sam, I think you completely you go through the literature, your work, and others to talking about the economic, the effects on jobs and the effects on wages, effects on crime, and show that immigrants are net positive rather than net negative. Um, but when you then transfer this to the like sources of opposition, I wondered a little bit whether you were taking criticisms too literally. Um, rather than people were using a rhetoric that seemed fine, but something else was driving their political positions. Because it seems to me equally plausible, just as I had a question of kind of baselines in the first part of the book, question about baselines here, it's completely plausible to me that people doing better than you makes you angry, as well as people do, contributing. And so the, the idea that people are coming here and outpacing economically may be itself a source of opposition for restrictionism. Similarly, some of the other, like, like, the food is better. So people say there's a taco truck in every corner, and we understand that as threat. But it's another possibility that people are having access to this cool new stuff that I don't quite know how to access. So what extent do you think that um, immigrant economic success is itself the driver of restrictions and rather than beliefs about harm? I think that's yeah. very plausible. I mean, when we, um, when our work has come out in the media, then I hear reactions from all across the political spectrum on social media. And I was really surprised initially, but now I, I kind of understand it better. Uh, David, exactly like you're saying. So when um, our findings came out that the children of immigrants are moving up 
uh, the economic ladder faster than children of U.S. born. We thought of this as good news. You know, there was all sorts of people saying that immigrants were going to make a permanent underclass, that the parents um, were holding very low-skilled jobs, didn't know English, and that the kids, too, would be in those kinds of positions. You know, oh, we have bilingual ed. These kids are learning in Spanish. They're never going to learn English. They're never going to move up the ladder. So we saw this as really positive news. And then we, I, I certainly heard some pushback along exactly the lines that you're describing um, with, with folks on Twitter saying, well, you know, if the, if these children of immigrants are doing so well, then they must be edging out uh, the children of the U.S. born. And so, again, it's a zero-sum way of seeing things that somehow there's a set of jobs that are available for kids who are raised, you know, uh, at the median or at the 25th percentile of the income distribution. And if more of the children of immigrants are getting those jobs, it must be that there's less for me. And it's, it's, also, it's also showing you this idea that... Uh, Regardless of what you, you know, if you show that the children of immigrants are doing worse, people will be like, you see, immigrants are terrible for the U.S. If you show that they are doing better, well, you see, they are terrible. They are, you know, they are doing better than us. And so, and so it's, it's like, uh, at the end of the day, a lot of it is judgment values that, uh, you know, uh, that all we can hope to do is to bring evidence and, uh, uh, and, and tell, and you can make your own, your own conclusions from it. This reminds me of one of my favorite scenes in the movie Metropolitan, which is one of Sam and I's favorite movies. Uh, we're always talking about upward social mobility, but what about downward social mobility? No one ever talks about that. And so, but this is, I think, an excellent point to make, which is that it seems its opposition seems overdetermined, and that there's a question of the limits to which your merely presenting facts will have any effect on this. But yeah. Well, so that that that's kind of where I want to go, and I think I think I I've heard you answer this in a way or anticipate an answer, but I'm going to ask anyway. And it's about kind of the, the irrational sources of, of policy, you know, leanings in, in a, a complicated country with, you know, different educational uh, backgrounds and so forth. Because in reading the, that chapter that, you know, we're, we're talking about now, it, it's almost as if the, the, the hidden premise is that Americans might oppose immigration for a reason that the the data driven economists can refute factually, um, and of course you do, you do to the extent people hold a belief about you know malign economic effects. But it seems like just looking out, uh, we know that you know policy preferences have other sources than facts. Um, and politicians know this, uh, and just as like in in my you know traditions, anti-Semitism was was called the socialism of fools. We also could hypothesize that you know people have voted for Trump to scapegoat immigrants for a lot of ills that they want to blame somebody for, uh, without really depending on any you know sophisticated causal sense about who's to blame really, or whether immigrants have played any role. And so in, in that context, it, it's, I'm, I'm just wondering how you think, you know, an economist can contribute to that debate about kind of charisma and, you know, irrationality and populism in, uh, in America when immigration is absolutely central to politics, but not because of, let's say, facts about it. 
Well, we have a charismatic leader who's anti-immigration, and that's President Trump. But we don't at the moment have a charismatic leader who's pro-immigration. And Ron and I believe that that person can emerge, um, that there is um, a there's a heartwarming, like heart-stirring element uh, to immigration in American history. Um, a number of people have told me that they have, have teared up in reading parts of Streets of Gold because it reminds them of their own family story. So I think we can access those emotions and we can change the national conversation about immigration. Um, and I don't think that it's going to be through another data chart or a, you know, a factoid. Um, and so we were ourselves were really surprised to learn in look and analyzing the data from the congressional record that attitudes towards immigration were consistently and uniformly negative from 1880 to 1945 and then over a you know a 15-20 year period changed dramatically through the efforts of President Truman, Kennedy and Johnson and this was through um, using the bully pulpit, writing short pamphlets, and accessing these kinds of American stories, American myths, talking about a nation of immigrants, using the Statue of Liberty as one of our national symbols. Um, but this was a really a brave act because it was against like a steady drumbeat of anti-immigrant sentiment. And it changed the narrative, this idea that immigrants fought patriotically in World War II alongside May, you know, children of the Mayflower, and that they truly belonged. And we don't really hear that kind of heart-stirring rhetoric right now. Instead, it's always like fighting the last battle. It's like, okay, now immigrants are being sent to Martha's Vineyard. This is like as of yesterday. Um, 50 immigrants are being sent to Martha's Vineyard. Oh no, we need to freak out and respond to this latest crisis rather than really sticking on message and using the kind of rhetoric that I think is, is, is quite a, would be quite effective. And the reason we think that such politicians, that this might be a winning politics, is that even in the 2021 Gallup survey, 75% of Americans said that immigration is a good thing for America. So this seems like one of these things that many Americans think immigration is good overall, and yet uh, you see this divided politics and very little progress on immigration policy, only executive orders, no really congressional, uh, bipartisan, uh, successful efforts. Uh, so yeah, so maybe the so that's why that's what makes us think that uh, that uh, it could be a winning politics for some charismatic leader to to take on a more positive approach to immigration. So I want to end up with what the lessons of uh, of the of your findings about immigrant uh, economic success are for broader policy question other policy questions. So one of the really striking findings, and uh, Leah adverted to this earlier, is that one of the sources of immigrant economic success is moving to particular places that in the earlier period, just completely avoiding the South, um, uh, and then in recent eras, moving to uh, metropolitan areas that are of higher wages to the New Yorks and San Franciscos of the world. And so I'm a land use scholar. And so one of the things that I, uh, I mean, this obviously I mean, the thing is like the case for uh, um, for housing liberalization or zoning liberalization as a way to encourage other people to move to these areas. But I was wondering if you could think about a, a suite of other things. So like um, subsidies for location, like moving subsidies, not just like paying for people's moving trucks or whatever, but like literally anytime anyone moves, they get $2,000 or something. Or um, 
I mean, one thing I've written about is like changing rules on occupational licensing and a variety of other things that inhibit mobility. But what do you think we could do to encourage native-born Americans to have the successes of people who come here from uh, other countries? I mean, to me, the most important thing is, like you said, um, providing uh, more housing in productive areas. Um, And providing doesn't mean social housing. It just means like allowing for there to be more development um, so that um, housing prices are not astronomical and pricing people out of of some of the most productive areas. So there really has to be um, a, 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 a twinning of immigration policy and housing policy. We can't, um, you know, increase the number of people entering the country without having some hope that there's a place for them to live without uh, pushing up rents for other people who live near them. Immigrants obviously are doing a good job in uh, moving to locations that offer good opportunities for them and their children. For the U.S. born, it's more difficult because moving to opportunity means moving away from home and that's tough. Immigrants already left home, so that's easier. Uh, and so, yes, you can think about, uh, you know, helping, you know, like uh, incentivizing moving people. But uh, there is also a deeper problem, which is that you want to make locations that are not good for, you know, not don't lend themselves to opportunity, make them better. It's not, you know, at the end, it's not sustainable to just move everybody from, you know, bad, you know, bad places, that, you know, to, to more higher opportunity places in the market. And it, even though we know that it helps, you know, moving to opportunity, uh, this is where I think there is uh, some also work on, uh, you know, from Opportunity Insight Group uh, at Harvard about uh, uh, how do we make sure that uh, the, the fact that your zip code is such a big determinant of how you end up doing for Americans, how can we change that by a combination of uh, uh, incentivizing people to move while at the same time making play, uh, locations uh, better? I, I just want to quickly push on that a little bit. It's like um, it strikes me that the making places better argument is like quite challenged by your research in some ways because it's uh, I mean, it's not like we don't make efforts to make places better, and it's really that it is the locational choices that have driven so much of the effect. And so it's a really strong argument for mobility, I think. Um, um, not to, And there's not just housing, but other things also. I mean, I, it's not like we could achieve f- f- high, but we could do more, right? So, I mean, for one, I mean, there are ideas I don't like, but people might like, like a draft gets people to move and then move again. Um, uh, because they've already physically not lived where they are, or um, subsidies for college residential colleges, which are in their own way create space. And so, I'm just curious if you could think if there are any if there's any other things that you would say that are like you know I wouldn't layer policies on top of what's really a broken housing system. Um, and so, like we could just accept the housing that we have and say let's incrementally give people a couple thousand dollars to move. I don't think it's going to make a big difference when we're talking about, you know, astronomical rent gradients between productive and less productive cities. Um, And so, uh, you know, interestingly, in exactly the same research designs that do not find much effect of immigrants on the wages of the U.S. born, there's pretty strong empirical evidence that when immigrants arrive in a place, rents go up. And that's not that surprising. Look, you know, when any person moves into a city and if housing isn't allowed to adjust, rents are going to go up. But why isn't housing allowed to adjust? You know, it's 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 just we 
are accepting this very fundamental broken part of our economy and just trying to like tinker around at the edges. Um, so that might, you know, it's almost like, okay, we need a whole other hour to talk about that. So, you know, and David well, could be talking about his own work yeah. um, on that. It's a, it's a Yimbies of the world unite. I'm all in. Um, it's a, uh, it's a, it's a, it's been a real pleasure to have you here. This was such a fun book to read and I learned so much. So thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you. Thanks, thank both you. of you. Yeah, thank you for having us. Thank you.